There we go. Okay, we're on. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to All Things Agriculture Podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, please have Josh here. What? Your last name? How do we? It, Gro- Grobly? Grobany. 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 The L is silent. Grobany. Okay. Yep. I've I've seen it written down a bunch of times. I always mm. I've never known how to pronounce it. So Grobany. Okay. Yep. Josh. Hey, thanks for stopping by tonight. Oh yeah. So kind of been uh, pestering you a little over the last few <laughs> months about. Um, well, you're you're a, you're a, you're a listener, right? Yeah, yep, I am. Yep, I listened to all the episodes. Thank you. <laughs> so, anyway, I know Josh. Josh works for Dairy One. I'm sure if any of you are listening or watching and have a dairy farm, you may know who Josh is, and he might test your milk. So, I guess I'll hand it over to you. And why don't you give a little background about who you are and where you're from? And yeah. Um, my name is Josh Grobany. I am from Moravia, New York. I was born and raised here. Um, I'm 23. I grew up on a beef farm. My parents had when I first was uh, born. They they bought the, the farm as a beef farm. They bought all the cows and everything. So I grew up with beef cows until I was about 10. And then we got rid of the beef cows because the barn fell in, basically. Mm. So then when I was 12... I went to work for a local organic dairy farmer who paid me $2.50 an hour to milk his dairy cows. So that's where I got my start in dairy farming. And I did that for quite a few years as I was younger and did a lot of work for him. And uh, then I went and bought my own dairy herd. I brought it into his herd. Shouldn't have tapped the table. That was loud. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> um, I bought those dairy cows, put them into his herd. I've grown my herd ever since. Um, that's also, I, I married his granddaughter. Um, so I, I that kind of worked out well. So I met her and that's kind of where I, I stuck on the farm for quite a bit because of that reason. Um, and then I went to work for dairy one back in 2000 and I think it was late 2019. I went back to, I went to work for dairy one and started working for them pretty much full time. Plus dairy farming on the side for the farmer. And, uh, then I ended up, um, in the spring of 20, it was 2021. It was, so it's only been about a year since I pulled my dairy cows out of that herd. And me and my father-in-law started at a dairy farm in Moravia and were organic grass fed through Maple Hill Creamery. So we shipped through them. So, and that's kind of where I'm at today. So, and I, so I dairy farm full time, plus I dairy one test all the cows full time. So I'm keep myself very busy. Yeah, you're just saying you're kind of in a calving spot right now. You aren't seasonal, but you're heavier certain times of the year. We get paid, or we used to, but it's since with the milk price and everything, with the whole milk industry, it's kind of different than it used to be. But we bred towards it for about five years or so. We were breeding towards winter freshening because we were getting up to $40 a hundredweight for our Mm. milk in the winter. Anything we could ship over our minimum amount of milk that we were supposed to ship. So we started breeding for that really heavily and it did really well for us. And we also, we make really high in baleage with a lot of protein, a lot of sugars in it and stuff like that so that we can push our cows to make a lot of milk in the winter on just hay because we don't feed any grains or corn or anything like that at all. So we kind of freshen out in the winter time just because then we can hit the ground running in the spring on good grass and the cows are already making a lot of milk at that point so it just keeps pushing them harder and harder to get more milk more milk out of them because once you hit late summer they're all going to kind of windle off anyway mm-hmm. so you might as well be have everybody bred back and getting fat on grass in the late summer so and not trying to push as hard through the late summer while we're trying to make hay and all that stuff so but yeah that's about what we do so so the the reasoning behind the higher milk price in the winter is essentially most guys are either either seasonal they aren't milking mm-hmm. certain parts of the winter or yeah the, gr- the whole grass fed thing it's harder to make milk in the winter because there's no grass mm-hmm. yeah so <laughs> <laughs> unless yeah you have to have your own you have supply. to make up a lot of hay so and that's why they ought because they're they're never looking for milk during the spring because the spring flush i mean mm-hmm. tons and tons of grass milk i mean it's coming in but in the winter time, it really dwindles down because it's not as easy as everyone thinks it is to make really good hay to feed your cows to keep body condition on them and to make a lot of milk on baleage alone. So yeah, is that tough to keep? Just you don't have the you know you'll have the carb energy like you have in a corn silo. Is that tough to keep that? It's body? genetically bad bred at that point. I mean, we basically we've been breeding for genetic grass fed genetics for 
seven ever since i bought my herd i bought my herd grass-fed genetics for that reason and we bred bulls we breed a2a2 all that type of stuff to help keep us ahead of the uh, i guess the niches mm-hmm. you never know what's going to come along somebody might want to buy your milk just because it's a little fancier but and that's yeah. the only way you can make it as a small-time farmer nowadays is to have some type of niche so yeah, you're exactly right about that. Yeah. That's I believe. Yeah. So you do a lot of A2. Every all your bulls are A2. All A2. my bulls are A2, A2 tested and bred too, and we do a lot of that type of breeding. And then we are we pick our own bulls out of our own herd just because we like our genetics. But we have bought in a few here and there. But we try to have a pretty closed herd okay. as much as we can. So. So what do you you have like Frisians like New Zealand type? We have Dutch Belteds, Milking Shorehorns, Ashires. We have a few Angus Crosses. We have some purebred Holsteins that came from an original herd that we transitioned to organic. Um, we have New Zealand genetics, some New Zealand Jersey genetics. Um, basically. Those color breeds that nobody sees. We have a bunch of linebacks. Like I was telling you, we had a 20-pound stopping wet lineback calf born the other morning. And it's happy and healthy and bunking around. But we have a lot of the linebacks. And they don't they don't seem to milk as great as my Dutch Belteds do. I call them, my Dutch Belteds are definitely the Holstein of grass cows. But they, they still, they do all right. So, so these, a lot of these breeds are more of a... They're pushing the components of butter fats yep. of proteins we, in we less volume. A, yeah, we push a high butter fat and all the proteins and stuff. I mean, we still, I mean, we probably, my, my Dutch Belteds can average, oh, 50 pounds, 50, 60 pounds when they're fresh up until about 150 days, 180 days in milk. But once they hit over that peak, there's a point where basically being grass fed is basically getting your cows bred back and freshening out as quick as possible because- mm-hmm. They're going to make more milk when they're fresh, and that's just kind of how it is. So, Yeah, it's hard to sustain that. Yeah, you can't have a cow that's 280 days of milk still milking 80 pounds like you can at a conventional dairy farm. It just doesn't happen. So yeah. she's yeah. going to put her weight back on, and she's going to not <laughs> want to do anything. She's going to lay around and be lazy and not want to, you know. So so what's your cutoff in terms of breeding? Because you have such a specific time period where you really have to get that cow we bread. we can definitely hold them over more than a seasonal farmer can. I mean, we definitely have had it where she comes in or she had a hard birth and she isn't uh, she didn't get bred back as quick as she should have or whatever. And we can definitely push her over until the summer. And it doesn't hurt to have some fresh cows trickling in during the summer. They just don't do as well as the ones coming right off of winter into the spring. But we definitely we hold on to. I mean, we don't call cows basically ever. I mean, I think in the last probably five years of my herd i think i've called out maybe a cow a year so just because i don't i don't need to call out cows very often as long as they don't have feet problems and as long as they are good and not cystic we can normally keep them around so for a while and then it just it gets if it gets to the point where they're only milking five pounds and yeah it's just you just can't and they're just really fat and they're just yeah. not doing anything it's like all right it's time for you to leave yeah so. they're, they're big giant fat and their udder is just like a little yep. like it looks like a little pouch like, yeah they just look at you and they're so happy to be alive but they just yeah, they need to go away <laughs> time, time to go and with beef price being high it's kind of tempting to be yeah. like oh well it's time for you to head on out yeah. and change your career yep so. <laughs> um what is the because I know, you know, conventional price right now is I think for the month of January we got close to twenty five dollars. Oh. Uh, is is a grass fed organic farm? We're at we are at uh, thirty four. Okay, and then with components we can get up to about thirty six fifty, thirty seven somewhere in there. So it's less than it used to be. I mean, when I first start, when I first got into, or uh, when we first went to Maple Hill back when I was at the grandfather's farm, um we were getting $40 a hundred weight. And then if you were getting good components, you could get to 42, $44. I mean, it was just crazy money. These, this company was paying for the milk and they were making cheeses and yogurts and stuff like that. And all that stuff has basically been scrapped off the board at this point. And they do some yogurt, but now it's mostly just milk and yogurt. And it's not really like they they don't chew cheeses anymore and all that type of stuff. So it's definitely that they're, um creamery has changed from what it used to be because it was a new york based creamery down in kinderhook mm. and it was a local farmer who started it and he just got bigger and bigger and bigger and started adding on farms and farm and that's basically how it got and then it up until about the last two years 
he actually, the owner of it that was the farmer, decided he was going to step away from the creamery and go sail his boat around the Caribbean. Oh. So he's having a good time. He made his money. So he and... made his money and he stepped away, I think, at the right time. But the company, he still owns the company. It's just he's not running the company. So that's the only thing that's different now. And there's other people that are marketing managers that are running it and stuff. And it, it's it's all right. Is it, Do you think he was definitely the catalyst of keeping it? He was definitely the person that you could call because like I had his cell, I had a cell phone number. Like oh. if I had an issue, I could call directly to the owner. I can't do that anymore. So it's not like how it used to be where it, Maple Hill was, I think, a lot more of a small farm. And they still are for the small farmer more than any other company is that I've seen. But it's definitely like it's just the industry. So the industry, the dairy industry is kind of crazy as it is. So <laughs> we know that. Well yeah. Enough. So how many farms are in that co-op? Uh, about 150. And it's only New York-based farms. There's okay. n- oh, nobody else. It's other than as long as you're in New York. But there was a there was a few of my herd that were like on the Pennsylvania border, where the dairy farm itself was in New York, but the fields and everything were in Pennsylvania. So they kind of oh. they they let it they let it slide apparently. But um, there was a lot of farms that were really like when Maple Hill first started. They uh, had a lot of farms scattered just everywhere. I mean, just there was a. 10 cow dairy over and wherever and they were oh yeah we'll come pick you up and we won't even charge you trucking and they did and that would mean when they for the first five years of the company that's what they did they just went to get any milk they possibly could and now they within the last i think it was like two or three years they've been dropping a lot of farms that were you're not in the right location or you're kind of way out of the way it's i mean it's just the way it is so typical how it all goes yeah and the trucking we've we've started paying maple hill still pays for about half of our trucking so better than it's better than else. it's better than anybody else yeah but it's a lot of farmers weren't very happy about it because they're like well you used to pay for all of it well yeah at least you're getting some of it paid for as how i look at it so right so is it just there was such a demand for this product and he was just making such hand over fist or he was willing yeah. to just send tractor trailers out he was bring. looking for any bit of milk i mean there was no minimum you could ship 500 pounds every other day they didn't care and <sighs> It was just as much if he could get as much milk as he possibly could, he would. And he was looking for basically anybody He'd call around and oh, you're an organic farmer. You're looking to go grass fed. No grain. But yep, we'll pick you up 40 bucks, 100. And there was people that were switched right over. There's people that were signing contracts. And then I'm trying to remember what year. I think it was 2018 was the year that they actually sent out a bunch of notices saying that they were going to have to cancel contracts and um basically if you were on the waiting list you were going to have to get pushed back farther so there was all these people that were building dairy farms to uh start doing grass-fed they were like they put tons of money up they had a contract signed with them and maple hill basically said we can't take you right now and they're and they got they were the first ones to get added on they were on a list and if you were on that list you were the first one to be added to the milk market but um it took a while for you to get on that list so so you so i'm trying to think you said earlier were you guys did you join when you got your own herd or was your grand your so wife's grandfather and was he actually nope we um what happened was is like i said i had the owner's phone number so i called him and said that we were going to separate from the grandfather's farm and uh we wanted to know if we could um basically we already the milk for our cows was already going to the company we just wanted to know if we could have our own contract and that's kind of what we did. And they were, they were workable with us and we made a good, we made it work and everything. And we were within a, I mean, we're only, I don't even think it's a half a mile from all and I, the local pickup. So, I mean, we're basically a straight shot up the road to pick us up. So um, they didn't really have an issue with where we were. It was basically, and then, so we talked to them and worked through it and it was right during COVID. I mean, <laughs> It was such a hassle. We had to have inspectors come out for Maple Hill to do body on body scoring on the cows to make sure our herd was profitable and was able to uh, be conditioned as grass fed, which they were. I mean, we were already shipping grass fed, but so during that whole time, like we couldn't even when the inspector came out, we couldn't even be at the farm. He came oh, to the really? farm just to look at the animals without us there because covid and, oh yeah and then our pco organic we had to inspect the farm as certified organic so we had to have a we had to do a we were they wanted us to do a zoom call and then do it over webcam like take them to the field and say yeah that's uh <laughs> that's the field right there that one 
So it's all it's all organic. <laughs> but they the, there was one there was one inspector that was willing to come out and he said he didn't care and he wanted to he was gonna come out. He didn't have an issue, he didn't put a mask on or anything, he just was fine with it. So he was an older guy. He was a so that's how that all worked out. I, w- I wish all of our inspections were by zoo hey you want you want to see our pipeline okay yeah there it is you see? this is the clean see? spot yeah, <laughs> yeah right yeah, there yeah, yeah see there it is it looks good doesn't it okay nope. oh man huh so that's pretty interesting i so are they the only milk uh grass-fed milk co-op in new york or the northeast so they're on the labeling they are the first they were the first organic 100 percent organic grass-fed maple company in new york is what they labeled it as and they still are but there is burn dairy they have it's called burn hollow okay and that's their organic line but they do have a grass-fed line mm. and then there's organic valley they have their grass-fed route too and okay. i think there's a few other ones stony field might have a grass-fed route and stuff like that where was he kind of was maple maple hill were they kind of the first they were the the pioneers and yeah, then the others were, saw and they're oh we'll do the same well thing. they were they were very small grass-fed but they were the first to be um to label their products as 100 percent grass-fed i mean there was grass-fed farms that were organic but they weren't certified as 100 percent grass-fed so it was kind of like a yeah we do a lot of pasture-based grazing and our cows get fed a lot of hay but there's still some grain fed yeah so yeah, that's that, kind of how that was that's, i would say that's most organic farms. most organic farms it's, yeah you have to graze for a certain amount i think it's a hundred and i want to i think it's about 150 days for just a straight organic farm you have to graze for about 150 145 days or so out of the year but for 100 grass-fed we're up we have to be up above 165 so we have to graze for quite a lot of days so that's five 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 and a half months mm-hmm. 120 five and a half four yeah. so yeah we start grazing right about i want to say last year we started like may 8th so and we started grazing and we have to do we have to get about 65 percent of their daily dry matter intake from the pasture so we don't feed a ton of we do feed a little bit of we'll do some second cutting in the barn when they're getting milked and stuff but most 90 percent of their feed is coming from the pasture so we do a very intensive rotational grazing we give them Uh, I think it's like uh, one acre paddocks and they get switched after every milking. So they're only on it for 12 hours. So they're always getting moved. How big is your herd again? uh, We milk about 65 cows. Okay. So, and the, uh, um, their base is kind of like they're in in summertime, they're in milk and they're right back out. It's just kind of a revolving door. So we have, yeah, we milk about 65 cows, give or take, depending on, you know, but we milk with 10 units. So we can milk, me and my wife can get through our herd in about 45, 50 minutes. We can milk the entire herd down and kick them right back out onto pasture. So it doesn't. And then all the heifers are at the heifer facility on pasture all year. So you don't have to do a deal with them. And calves, we, like I said, we're winter freshening. So all the calves by that point are Mm. weaned basically. So we might have a few bottle babies, but I mean, chores can be done in under two hours basically that's pretty nice so we can yeah we've set it up basically because like i said i work full-time for dairy one so i can be there sometimes but it all but it has to be reasonable enough that i can be in and out before i have to go test another farm so yeah yeah so in terms of grazing like this past 2021 was as you and i uh, Mm -hmm. great it It was was a great grazing great grazing but the year before when it was a drought what so do you get special exceptions like in drought weather we can um we can do extra feed we can do we can feed baleage and stuff because i mean we have to keep the cows fed and there's not much we can do i mean we had um we had what they call um emergency pastures set up that were like they were hay fields, but we could graze them if we needed to. And we did. I mean, we grazed off basically everything that we could before we started feeding hay. And I think we only had to end up feeding hay for, there was like a lot of their hay for probably about two weeks. And we were feeding strictly baleage, but it took up a lot of our feed mm-hmm. just because, I mean, we we were feeding all the um, late May cut hay that we've made because we hadn't made second because there was no second. So we burned through a lot of our late May hay. And then, so we went into winter. Luckily we ended up getting some really good third cutting the end of that year. We put up a lot of third and that kind of pushed us through. And then we had some leftover hay from the year before that we were able to feed heifers. So we weren't trying to rely on making heifer feed at the same time. So, but you know, yeah. So you did get a third cutting that. Yep. We did. We put it, well, we, 
So we took second off and then we put two ton an acre of chicken litter down We mm. and did that. And then right after that, we timed it really well, apparently, and it rained for like two days. And that was like right at the, like the end of that season. Like we got two days worth of rain and that was it. And we hit it just right. And all that rain and chicken litter made that grass come right up real thick. And we were able to get a lot. We do about 300 acres or so of pat or um, hayland. So all that combined, we were able to get quite a bit oh, of third. So that is quite a bit for you know. 65. Yeah. Animals. For us, for us, that's a lot. I mean, cause yeah. we feed two and a half bales or so um, twice a day. So to the dairy herd, so four or five bales a day, the, the dairy herd will eat just because we, we push a lot of feed to them. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That, see, we never even got that rain that, that season. Like, <laughs> there was a lot of farmers I went to. I was like, ah, oh, did you get that rain the other day? What? No, yeah. I saw it over yeah. on that hillside. <laughs> I used to watch the rain go to the north towards where you live. Mm-hmm. And we actually, and we would have nothing. Actually, a guy who does some of the mowing for like, he mows my place and another mm-hmm. house we own. He told us, he said, there's about a mile stretch from McLean Road and 222. And he said, between there, no one gets rain, but you go either north or south of mm-hmm. it and there's, it's green. Yep. But you guys have literally got nothing. That's, that's a challenge when all, all your land is within like one mile. Like basically yeah. all of our land is within, is within one mile of our mm-hmm. farm. So, so if we don't get rain, nothing gets rain, but at least yeah. if you had, you know, land two miles away maybe you'll get rain so we got land that's 10 miles away that we haul hay from and it's quite a haul but i mean it definitely made a difference because there was a it's over near skinny atlas lake okay so sometimes you'll get rain over there that yeah. we won't get in moravia so it works out and then we'll be like okay well this pastures or this hay field is not doing well but the one over there can be cut and we'll make hay on that so yeah, I didn't realize how convenient it is being close, but at the same mm-hmm. time, how uh, kind of what's the word? You're Boxed kind of, in. Yeah, and you're you know you aren't. You're it, limited on what you can. Because yeah, you know. if it doesn't if it doesn't rain at the farm, basically none of your crops are getting rain. Mm-hmm. But so that what happened was that fall, there's a neighbor. He's probably a five minute drive from here, and he has sold it. He was selling his cows within I think in October of 2020. Mm-hmm. Or was it was it last year? Yeah, 2021. He was selling his cows. I think. When did we get the drought? Two years ago, 2020. It was two years ago. 2020. So he was selling his cows <clears> in October 2020, and he's like, "Hey, I have a like a 20 acre pure alfalfa field. I don't need it. I'm gonna just plow it under, put mm-hmm. corn in it next year. If you want the hay, just come get it. You know, pay him for it. Mm-hmm. So we did that." It was everything was dead at our farm. We go to his place. I mean, it's a five minute drive with mm-hmm. a car, and the alfalfa was like two feet tall. Like looks what? great. Yeah, we're like what the hell? And he's like, take it. So we took it, brought it back. Got like a hundred some odd bales. Went back for a fourth. We had still in the head no rain. By this point, it's like September, mm-hmm. pushing October. The, the alfalfa was taller the second time around. Mm-hmm. And it was, he's like, oh, he had puddles of water. He's like, oh, yeah, we got rain just the other day. We're like, oh, yeah, we watched it go. Yeah, we watched it go, go by. Go to the north. and I love when you're driving down the road and you'll see, like, the line in the road where the <laughs> rain stopped. And you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, my. It's so just. Uh, we yeah. had a farmer in New Hope, and uh, we certified a lot of his land and because we'd, um, we'd buy hay. And we so we'd, we'd certify the land as organic, and we'd run it as organic land. And. He was going to try to make hay on it last, uh, last no, it was, it was the drought year. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just couldn't keep up because over there he was getting tons of rain and he had so much hay ground and he just couldn't keep up by himself. So we started coming back. We came back over and then we had the land still certified. So we went back over and we kept making hay on it. And we made a lot of first cutting that was, it was June cut first cutting, but it was good heifer feed. And we made a lot. That's where a lot of our drought heifer feed came from. And we're still feeding a lot of that really because so, yeah, we i mean we singly wrap all of our bales so we stack them and as long as they don't get punctured they're they stay they stay good i mean they lose a lot of their vitamins and everything that's in them but they don't really go bad yeah <clears throat> yeah well that's the thing right now behind my house we have we've fed 300 baleage bales so far over 300 and we have another three or four hundred to go of good quality bales plus we have another 250 of rye and triticale we haven't even touched <laughs> And our one bunk of haylage mm-hmm. is still completely full. Mm-hmm. And we probably won't touch that till May. So it's like, 
talking to my dad like well we gotta figure something out we're gonna put all the hay this year i mean who knows maybe we'll have another drought i hope not but it's well you'd be prepared if you did yeah yeah and you know the way we're you know well you don't really have to worry well i don't know it's chicken litter like fertilizer and conventional fertilizer is out of sight yeah. is that are you seeing that with um i haven't any sort of chicken? i have yet to call and order my chicken litter yet but um i'm hoping it's not but i'm guessing i'd be surprised it, to see what that is yeah because i mean chicken litter just the amount of nitrogen it has in it i mean that's i mean i would be very surprised if nobody else was like oh that's a cheap replacement for fertilizer yeah, yeah. so does that come out of the, the mid-atlantic like maryland no it comes out of uh it's out of new york there's a farm down it's up in uh upper new york that it comes out of that we get oh. ours from so but yeah stuff pretty potent it's pretty it's <laughs> pretty rich i mean it's not sifted i mean it's definitely it's it's not the cleanest stuff you can get possibly because you can buy that stuff but i mean if you're just putting it on pastures and stuff, it doesn't really make too big of a difference. And we spread it with a lime spreader, and so it works out well. You just want a rain pretty soon after to help. Yeah, because, I mean, you can put it on, and it's not really like it's not like cow manure where it's pretty watery. You know, like you'll have a strip of nice green grass <laughs> once you spread it. But if you put the chicken litter down and you let it rain, it rains right after it. I mean, you'll definitely see the grass come right back up pretty quickly. So it gets in the grass, gets very dark, and the cows... uh they don't seem to love the hay at first, but they definitely get used to it. So it's kind of like where they <clears throat> take a crap in the field. They don't want to eat it, but it looks like a good spot, but they oh, just yeah. won't eat it. It's nice and green and mm -hmm. tall, and they just mm, go around it. Mm -hmm. When I was in New Zealand, when I studied in New Zealand, and then I visited a friend in Ireland, they make those cows. They eat those mm -hmm. down where they where they they do crap. yeah oh, they yeah. do but, really hard grazing where they just they have no choice yeah you know? and it's like you can see where the cow pies are because it's just like mound mound but there's it's no grazed right down like how do you make them do that like you said eh. they get used to it yeah they get used to it and they'll eat it and yeah. say we put two like i said we put two ton an acre of chicken litter on and um there's not much ground that they can't find grass that hasn't yeah. been spread on so it's kind of like at that point which i mean the grass like the baleage comes in and it's really high protein. It's really good sugars and stuff, but they kind of turn their nose up at it for the first day or two. And then they're kind of like, okay, I'll eat it. Yeah. yeah. So, better than better than nothing. And they milk good on it. It's just, they just, they throw a fit about it. Our yeah. cows are super picky about their feed <laughs> for some reason. They have spoiled cows. So, so they're, they're just as bad as Holsteins. They're like, yeah, I don't yeah. like, like Angus are just mm -hmm. Angus will eat pigs. concrete, but I mean the jerseys, oh, can't even eat that. It's a little stocky. <laughs> Are jerseys more divas than Holsteins? Yes. Yep. Out of my, out of the all the herds I've gone to and all the herds I've dealt with, jerseys are definitely the pickiest of all the animals, and they will literally eat something and just say, "I don't like it, and I'll die. <laughs> I'm just gonna die." I, I've worked with a few jerseys on a farm. I worked for a farm in Maine, and there was on me like four or five jerseys, and those things with like the, the Holsteins come into a pen like in a free saw and the Holsteins after they come back from your milk they usually run to the to the opposite end of the pen mm -hmm. and start to eat with the jersey just right plop, there right there yeah she's like you know out there smarter or what the Holsteins are dumb they just run and the Holsteins are, yep jerseys are, yep right I'll just be the first one I go to a couple farms and I can see the cows in the free stalls and it's funny that the jerseys will stick together and the Holsteins <laughs> will stick together but they won't really mingle and it's like oh it's kind of clicky <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you'll see that quite a bit but um the jerseys definitely seem to I mean I've worked with enough jerseys like I've seen jerseys get milk fever like after they're in milk 150 days they're like oh, yeah i'm gonna get milk fever now i mean seems up, like a weird time but okay up in maine the herdsman <clears throat> told me about one jersey they had the first thunderstorm of the year the jersey would have milk it didn't matter if she could be fresh 200 days of milk or dry must have stressed her out or something <laughs> every time they're the first thunderstorm of the year she'd be down milk fever they had to go find her and treat her weird very weird hmm. But yeah. yeah, they do make cute babies. Though. They they do make cute babies. Not worth much, but yeah. they make cute babies. And they make a lot of butt. I mean, I do some, uh, I test for some really high-end heritage Jersey farms. And they ship up six, a six and up butter fat. I mean, just crazy amount of butter fat. And they get paid through DFA. They get paid a lot of money for their milk, like conventional organic money for their milk, just yeah. because of how high their butter fat is, which makes me sit there thinking, boy, you could just 
get your components right, you could probably do all right just being conventional, mm -hmm. but it's neither here nor there. Well, uh, a guy I know has a, I've heard a Dutch hollow farm. Yep. yep. So is it, he's in a, a discussion group. One of the, one of the, I don't know if he's an owner. He works there. He's his wife, his family. He mm -hmm. married into it. And he brought this up at a meeting I was at just the other day. And it makes sense. He said, some Holstein guys who are with the DFA have the quota. They're getting rid of, get rid of Holsteins and bring in jerseys mm -hmm. because you'll have the lesser volume, yep. but, but you'll have the components. Yep. And so, yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense if you don't mm -hmm. want to really sell off, you don't want to lose the amount of cows you're milking, but yep. you just want to lower your volume. Yep. I go to farm, I go to a farm and his production has gotten to the point of where it's so high and so broad across the entire span. He's no longer calling on production. He's calling on butterfat. So oh. if he's not at a certain butterfat, it doesn't matter if that cow's milking 90 pounds, she's not going to stick around for the next lactation just because she doesn't have a good enough butterfat and it's not worth his time to keep her because he has enough cows coming in and it's more about the components than it is about volume now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Pounds of fat, butter, butterfat, protein. I've heard farmers say that they're like, boy, I get paid for components. Why don't I just open the tap on the bottom of the tank and let that don't turn the agitator on and let it skim <laughs> out and... Send the butter. I mean, probably get paid probably just about the same, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Especially if you're a DFA and mm -hmm. you have a, a quota amount that you, yeah, or you Agrimart, you get docked on if you ship over your quota amount. I mean, you might as well just turn the agitator <laughs> off and let the cream rise up a little bit and take some of the skim off the let, bottom. Let the water run out. Yep. Yeah. Run <laughs> it out to the gutter and spread it. Farmers are, have ingenuity. They'll they figure out how to make it work. Mm -hmm. well, so being a kind of, uh, dairy one yep. you must see a wide array of different strategies i mean not mm -hmm. that you really know each farm individual but you have an idea just yep. seeing different herds you see the same thing at every farm same everybody's milking cows doing their best but you definitely see the farmers that they everyone does it a little different and they all have their ideas of how to make it better and how they're going to do it and how they're going to do it the best and so you see a very broad span across the entire board. I mean, I test everywhere from nine cows all the way up to we do a farm over in Auburn, New York, that's milking, I think they're around 4,500 cows. Now Lincoln Dairy is about 4,500 cows and they're a very big farm. So, I mean, and there's bigger, I mean, there's farms out in Western New York that are up above five, 6,000 cows. And I mean, we're not testing the biggest farms, but we're testing this the Finger Lakes area is definitely a very high milk area. I mean, we have the most farms out of in this general section of uh, New York has more farms than the rest of it. Oh, so, really? Yeah. And from so yeah, what's your area? I, I run Cuga County down to Tompkins County, and um, I do a little bit of broad work outside of that. But mostly, I run Cuga and Tompkins County farms. So so in a, in a month. So those who don't know you. Typically, not all, but most farms are monthly. Yeah, most farms are monthly. I do about anywhere from 30 to 40 farms a month. Depends on the month, I guess, and how many extra farms I need to get done and catch up on. So, I mean, there's some farmers, they want to test every 30 days. Some do every 35, which is a five-week interval. So, they can hit their 10 tests a year, but they don't have to. So, because you have to have 10 tests a year to be registered test. And then you can skip those other two so they, they don't see the need to pay for the other two if they don't have to. Okay. So that's why they do 35. And then there's farmers that do 45 or every other month. And then there's farmers that will skip four months. And that's where it's kind of like, okay, well, let me know when you want to test and we'll fit you in then. So okay. but most, most of my farms are around 30 to 35 days. So then I try. How many, how, many, how many cows would you say in a month that you, you oh, test? Oh, probably... Uh, 15,000 or so, 15 to 17,000, somewhere in there. Depends on how much I, how many I, of my own, I do about 15,000. And then I work with, um, other techs in the area that we do the really big farms on like Lincoln or Willett or those big farms yeah, in the area. Multiple There's multiple people running those farms. So just cause you have to. So yeah, yeah. You can't do it all yourself. <laughs> I've, I've ran, I've ran days where I get to one farm at 4am and I work from the, I work at that farm and then go back to the other farm and work at that farm till eight o'clock at night. 
And then I go from that farm back to the other farm and I help them wash up and I don't leave until midnight. So I've been up for 20 hours Jeez. and I did that for a little while. And then I kind of got to the point where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So, and I've kind of cut back on my midnight shifts cause I was doing a lot of them at, and I was pushing a lot of 12 to 15 hour days. And it's a lot to be on the same farm for 15 hour days, which because we don't get breaks because the parlor doesn't stop. Yeah. And we don't get, well, I mean, we can run to the bathroom if we can find a bathroom and we get to eat on the go. We'll throw a piece of pizza on our clipboard and we'll walk around and eat our pizza. <laughs> and, but and I listen to a lot of music and a lot of podcasts. So, yep. Yeah. That's a being in one, one, one spot mm-hmm. too. Yep, like, once, it's not like- yeah. We don't really, I mean. Yeah, when we're at these farms, I mean, you're walking around, but you're in that same parlor scene. I mean, I see the morning crew show up, more milk all morning, milk all afternoon, night crew show up, leaving them. It's like, okay, I've just seen two shifts of crews come and go, and I'm kind of still here. Yeah, you so let's get like... You get tired. Yeah. But it's all right. You get used to it. So Yeah, you, ha- yeah, you kind of have to. So I guess for maybe for those <clears throat> who aren't listening... Just a quick synopsis of what exactly testing okay. on a farm. I fear it's probably people listening who have no mm-hmm. idea what we're talking about, so they so might be very confused. I go to the dairy farms and we do data record entry. So we can, if it's a small tie stall that doesn't have their own on-farm computer, we can enter in their fresh dates, calving dates, dry dates, breedings, and all that information. Then we take um, our milk meters and we can weigh the we weigh the amount of milk that each cow gives individually. And then if they want to do a sample on that cow, we can take individual samples of each cow and we'll keep all that stuff sorted correctly. And we send it into our lab and they do somatic cell count and they do um, butter, they do protein, they do MUNs, and um, they can do up to pregnancies, yonis, uh, BVD, all that type of stuff, different testing on the cows too. But the normal is cell count and butter fat and buns. And they get that stuff done every month and helps them keep track of their herds. And I mean, when you have upwards of a thousand cows, it's kind of hard to make sure you know what every cow's doing. So yep. it helps a management yep. tool. Yep. Can't strictly go by it. Cause like you've always told me, you know, every cow mm-hmm. just cause it, she made so much milk one day doesn't mean she's gonna. Yeah. Just cause she made 50 pounds in the morning. Doesn't mean she's going to make 50 pounds at night. If you milk twice, or if you milk only twice a day, I mean, yeah. most farmers milk, twice but some will milk three times some milk four times it all depends on the farm and what he thinks he needs to do that to make the most milk pros- profit profitable so, yeah yeah and then yeah. so it's basically what dairy one dhi dairy herd improvement what's yep. the a stand for no idea i have no idea my aunt used d-h-i-a to, yep, d-h-i-a dairy, dairy herd, herd improvement, improvement. i don't uh, know yeah i'm not sure but basically yeah I'll, and f- I'll figure that out i'm sure it's <laughs> helped made dairies yes it's helped made it's helped the quality of dairy milk and dairy production i think a lot just because i mean like i said i mean if you're milking four thousand cows there's no way you can tell what that cow is if she's sick or she has a mastitis or a problem with her milk i mean there's no way you're going to be able to pinpoint her without the through the herd so yeah you need that individual that individual sample is extremely that's probably the most valuable out of mm-hmm. all like the, the milk weight's great but the actual sample where yeah. you can see what's her when you do a breakdown of your bulk tank and say oh well she's the biggest problem of the herd she's 56 percent of the tank that's causing an issue okay we're gonna pull her out and that's gonna yeah. make the tank a whole lot better yeah so yeah, yeah. my aunt was a <laughs> Yeah, she stopped into your farm one night and was chatting with me a while. Oh, okay. yeah. And she told me to harass some of the older techs that uh <laughs> They're probably all gone now. There's oh there's two left that she wanted me to harass. The one's <laughs> on his way out and the other one's retiring in December. Okay. So but she wanted me to harass them and say tell her that she's retired and they're not and uh ha ha. So <laughs> I did. I did tell them that and they, they laughed. Yeah, she she's showing me telling me about how when she used to do it and it was all just basically tie stall mm-hmm. back in the i think it was the 80s mm-hmm. 90s and tie yeah. stalls and probably very few parlors yeah well now everything is computers and um we do a lot of everything basically everything we do is on computers but my boss he started testing back in the i think he told me back in the early 80s and uh he's you would take the samples from the cows and you would take it home with you and you would have your acid and your tested stuff and you would do it all right at your house and you would write the information down on the paper and you could take it back to the farmer and Yep, you did all the testing yourself. You didn't send it into a lab to get done. 
So that's just been within the last, I don't know, probably, I think he told me it was back in the 1990 or late 90s that they started laboratories and doing it like that and doing high-end samples. So Yeah, well, like you said, the, you, you go to a 30-cow herd mm-hmm. and you aren't there till you know, you probably aren't milking at midnight, so it's sort of a... Yeah, you go in the morning at 4 a.m., you get done by 7. He said you'd go in, have breakfast with the farmer, <laughs> then you'd head home do your stuff, come back, do a night weight test on them. And then you would leave him his paperwork and then you'd go do another one the next day. And that was, it was yeah. just small tie stall. That's what you did every day. And it was probably three times the employee tester. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Just, I mean, there's not, I mean, out of the, our market of market 12, there is so small amount of people that are actually testing the amount of cows that we do. So. Yeah. How many, you told me between how many, testers are there in your market and the amount of cows you guys test i think there's probably i want to say there's anywhere from 15 to 20 people throughout this entire market 12 which runs all the way way up north and then basically pretty close down to the pennsylvania border and i mean market there's market 10 11 12 and i think there's a 13 too now but we're the finger lakes region market is what they call us and there's probably 10 15 of us in this market and we test um, I know one tech, he's testing 50,000 cows a month. So, and if the rest of the techs are testing about what I am, we're probably doing about 100,000 t- cows a month or give or take is what this market's doing alone. Just because, I mean, it's like I said, this is a very dairy heavy region. I mean, mm-hmm. I go down to a farm down in Jasper, New York, and they're the only farm. Where's There's, Jasper? It's, it's down near Rothbone. Or <laughs> keep going. <laughs> That's my favorite town to go Rothbone. through. Rothbone. It's my favorite town to go through. Uh, at down near Corning. Oh, okay. Yep, down okay. that way. So we're we can see the windmills from the in the Pennsylvania distance from the farm we're at. But it's a two hour drive to get there. We leave at two a.m. to get there at four a.m. and we test until about oh I think we usually leave around two in the afternoon. So we've been up for twelve. We've been up and going for 12 13 hours at that point and we're tired after that so it's a long day it must be a larger herd then it's about uh i think they're about 11 1200 cows but Just, they're the only tested farm in that area yeah yep basically huh so yeah well isn't there testers and pa too yep they there's testers and pa there's a lancaster dhi which is their own separate entity i think from dairy one but they're still they i think a lot of their samples come to dairy one to get tested the laboratory in Ithaca. And then there's, there is a DHI that's out in like Western or out in heading West in Ohio in that area to the farms out there. And they're a different market or a different regional uh, company of their own. There's different DHI companies. It's not just dairy one. Okay. So there's a lot of them at this point, but probably dairy, <clears throat> dairy one has the, the top lab where dairy, they can run yeah, samples. I mean, through. Dairy One has a pretty high end lab. I mean, we te- we do all the bulk tank tests. We do all of these milk sample tests for the area. Um, all of New York, Maine, um, heading up into there's Vermont, there's Ohio, PA. All these farms that are basically being tested that are within Dairy One's reach are getting sent back to Ithaca to get sampled and tested. So. That's a lot of samples. It is a lot of that samples. It is a lot of samples. Yep. You go wow. in, the lab has been behind and they get behind very easily if they if a person gets sick or they don't have enough help, which with COVID, they've been hard to keep people working. But um, the lab has gotten better. They've, they've been up to a week behind on samples, which is really tough because when we're, they're trying to do bulk tanks because bulk tank samples have to be done priority over uh, dairy herds being tested. So you can only get things done so fast so but i mean they do their best yeah so i know and they do even more they do down there what is there's they do forage forage. they do um back they do forage they do um feces testing they do all that type of water blood um a lot of different tests anything that you need done that's basically a agriculture type of test they can probably do it except for hemp they don't do hemp i thought they do thc testing back when we uh we did five acres of hemp Back in 2000, and I think it was 19, 19 or 20, whenever that hemp Back when was. it was a hot thing yeah, to do, we, man. Yeah, we tried it. We did five acres of it just for kicks and giggles, and uh, we ended up with a skid steer out of the deal. We brought, we bartered uh, 
all of our hemp biomass for a skid steer. Really? So hey, it worked out. Yeah, it, that yeah, that worked was, out pretty well. It was better than getting nothing. So, so how what was that like? The, like you just decide how we'll give it a try and yeah, we basically thought that uh, we we um my wife's grandfather is a weed and he's a very big like they own New Hope Mills in Auburn and so she's somewhat related to that family and he's and then the grandfather has a big mill company up in savannah new york i forget the name of it but um he was really wanting he was really big into the hemp idea so he got everybody hyped up on it oh you're gonna make a million dollars if you grow i think he told me it was like i think he said it was like three acres of hemp you could make a million dollars on i was like all right well we'll grow five acres of hemp so we grew five acres of hemp and it grew we did really well with it we think we i mean all every, by hand. All by hand. We yeah. everything was tilled by hand. Everything was planted by hand because the uh, transplants are so small and so frail. You have to plant everything by hand. You have to water everything by hand the first time, and then you have to go through and weed them. And once they get established, they're basically like a invasive weed because they just grow and grow, and they get this really thick stalk, and they really put up a lot of uh, size on them. And we were harvesting. They look like little Christmas trees at that point. And we harvest everything by hand. We threw them on hay wagons, took them back to an old dairy barn that was a nice farm. But we hung everything in the barn on trellises like tobacco. All, I think we did 15,000 hemp plants. You know, hung them all by hand, let them dry out. Then we took them all down and hand shucked them, all the leaves and all the buds, into a big, huge uh, feed tote, basically. And stored it. And then we had a buyer out in Colorado that wanted it. So he... We shipped some of it out there to him. Then we had a bunch of biomass left. And then this guy that was in, I want to say he was either in Vermont or whatever, wherever he was, he wanted the rest, a bunch of it. So we sent that to him. He liked it, but he didn't really have the money to buy it. But he had a skid steer. And we were like, boy, <laughs> why don't we just get another skid steer? Which we have three now. So I mean, hey, you can never have too many you, skid steers. You can never have too many skid steers. Yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, our dairy farm, we like to say that we're... Um, um, forwards farms because two three of our tractors didn't have reverse <laughs> for the longest time so we were pushing the tractors into the manure pit with the skid steer to spread manure but they were i mean they're big like new holland hydrostatic tractors but we just we didn't want to send them away to get fixed because it's expensive so mm -hmm. we were just like ah well when you're round bailing you're only going forward so what's it matter which i have videos of my father-in-law trying to get a bale out of the hedgerow and just driving into the hedgerow and just taking trees down just to try to get this round bale out of the hedgerow. So because he can't reverse. Because he can't reverse. So it's kind of like, well, I might as well just keep going. So do you have reverse now? Um I know you were asking me if I knew. We have, someone. yeah, I did. We have out of the three, one has reverse now. Huh? So we're getting there. Oh well, yeah, yeah, that's what the three skid steers are for. Yep, that's what the yeah. three skid steers are for now. Chain, a chain works just as well. The yep. yep, we have New Hollands, and we run the old long tractors, which is a Polish brand tractor. And uh, my father-in-law loves those, <laughs> loves those tractors. They're super hard to get parts for, and they're really not common in this area, but they always start and they always run. So, I mean, that's kind of all we're looking for at this yeah. point. So, you know. Well, and probably for the most part, <laughs> don't have too much tractor work besides just cropping and just stuff. Just cropping and, and spreading manure. manure. Yeah. We don't yeah. really do any tillage. Everything we do is we do um, airway seeding. So we um, just punch holes in the ground and drop seeds into the holes and do it like that. We don't really ever till up any type of land. We just improve the land by adding onto the top of it, adding the organic matter. So I don't think we've tilled up a field and I don't even think we have, a, I don't think we have a plow. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, we, the last time we tilled up a field, we had to borrow a plow from a neighbor just to till this field up. And the only reason we tilled it up was because it was just so miserably rough to try to mow. Mm. So, and it still is, but it's better than it was. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the hemp quick. So you went into that with buyers line, line, yep, we lined. We had buyers up. lined up, contracts signed. Oh wow! And it, you were ahead of the game. Yeah, we were ahead of the game. We had contracts signed. We had we had a buyer that was ready to take it all, <clears> and it just he. So the, the what happened was is there was all these producers producing the hemp, but there wasn't enough people that or the New York State didn't hand out enough licenses to process the hemp. So there was tons of people making it, but only a few places could process it and turn it into the oils. 
and they just couldn't take any more. And that was the problem. So, I mean, and there's, there was guys that basically that had the hemp the same year we did it, that they just burned it yeah, because they just couldn't get rid of it. And I mean, they just didn't want it sitting in their barn, taking up space and there was just, it was worthless. And then at, I mean, at that point, I mean, once the next year's hemp harvest is done, I mean, if you are stuff from the year before, nobody's going to pay you for it. Why would they pay you for old hemp when there's new stuff that they can get for basically the same price? So, yeah. So, so you, would you kind of see the writing, on the writing on the wall and said, we made it out this year. I'm not going to chance we're it not again. Do, we're not going to do it again. I mean, yeah. and if we saw that the industry got better and there was processors and everything lined up to basically, you know, make it better, we might consider it because we did enjoy it. Hemp was really fun to grow. It was a really different crop than anything we've ever grown before. So we really did enjoy growing it. It was just, can't grow it if you're not going to make money. Yeah, yeah. We paid it. We paid a dollar twenty-five per seedling or transplant. So it was very expensive cost to get into it because you have to buy only females Mm -hmm. and they have to be sexed because if they get pollinated by a male, then your whole entire crop is basically ruined. You have to find the one. What is it? One male for every X thousand. Like one male per like eight thousand. So you have to basically, like, we walked through the field looking for male plants so that we could cut them before they uh, pollinated the females. Because once they pollinated the females, they weren't flower buds anymore, and they weren't good for making oil. So You found them, I take it. Yep, we had a guy come that was really good at it, and he came through and walked the fields with us and was able to point out a couple of them. I think out of the whole field, I think they said we pulled maybe four yeah so it wasn't terrible but it definitely could have really impacted a lot if we would have let it go too long so but yeah <laughs> quite an experiment yeah we do we try to have our hands and just we for some reason we like to do just about everything we do syrup yeah. we do honey um we do a full-on market garden produce we sell to local businesses we do farmers markets we are doing a csa this year um so we do a lot like that then we do beef, we do pigs, we do chickens. Um, nice. Basically anything though. I didn't realize you do all. I I, didn't, I knew you did the like the farmers markets. Mm-hmm. Told me. I didn't know you did honey and oh, maple yep. Yep. and all that. One of the brothers does honey. One of the the father does syrup. Um, we do me and my wife. We do the market garden and the produce. So we do um, a lot of really a lot of tomatoes. We do four to six thousand onions, a thousand tomato plants. I mean just wow we do a lot so we try to keep we keep really busy zucchini and squash yep zucchini squash i bought some squash from your mother last yeah yeah squash from your mother last year because uh we grew a lot but we just didn't end up having the amount that we needed to supply the market so we group uh sold out of it pretty quickly so a lot of butternut squash Mm -hmm. so we do a lot of that tomatoes we we make a we sell a lot of tomatoes so i'm just people like tomatoes so. Yeah, I love tomatoes. Fresh tomatoes. <laughs> you cannot be a fresh tomato. That's for darn yeah. sure. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. You guys are kind of, like you said, you are into everything. Yep. Plus you have the dairy. Yep. We have the dairy farm and uh, we try to, yeah, we we like to be really busy. So then, yeah, with the two twin boys and very busy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's not just one, one's busy enough. I'm sure mm-hmm. you throw a second one in there. Oh yeah. They're, they love to come to the farm and they help us. My wife brings them to the farm and milks every morning at 5.30 with them. And they go to the farm every night at 4.30 and they milk the cows again and they have their chores. And we're basically raising little adults is how I feel because they don't really have any like um, they have a few cousins that are around the same age as them. But most of their time is spent with the older um, nephew, our aunts and uncles. So for being two and a half, I mean, they just full on sentences. They talk to you about excavators and skid steers and they were super excited to go to the farm show and we took them up to the farm show and they just, they were not wanting to leave the equipment barn or the equipment main facility. They just, they would have been happy to stay there all day and just every tractor just get up in it and climb in it and pull the levers and, you honk know, the horn. Honk, they, all they tried, they, a few of them, they left the batteries in and luckily they didn't have keys, but they were definitely able to turn all the lights and everything on. So I had to go back through and I had to figure out how to turn all the lights off. So yeah but yeah they keep us very busy so oh yeah. oh good <laughs> so i was gonna ask you what do you do besides work but it sounds like you stay pretty busy and you have your kids and yeah i do 
I just work a lot. Um, I stay very busy. I work, yeah, we try to do about 60 hours a week with uh, Dairy One. And then the rest of it's made up between the farm and the farming and whatever type of aspect. And then um, we, I got into three-wheeler racing a little bit last year. My brother-in-law very much is very big into racing the old three Honda three-wheelers. Yeah. So he has a very fancy lowered three-wheeler that he races on the flat tracks and everything. So I tried it last year and I kept blowing my engine up. I don't know. It just wasn't built properly, apparently. So he'll hear this tomorrow and he'll get mad at me because he's the one that built it. But I do blame him. What are you doing? Hammering down on it? He, the end, the the cylinder seized up on it after like two or three races. And we ended up having to tear it all apart. And I still have to order parts for it because I'm going to try racing again this year. But I just, it's definitely a lot. It's a, it takes up a whole day. I mean, you get there at three in the afternoon and you're there till midnight. Is that a frozen ocean? No, frozen ocean doesn't race. We actually go all the way up to paradise up near Geneva. And then there's another one champion, which is, uh, heading down towards Whitney point area. So, okay. God, those things are like you turn too hard and you'll flip right. That's why over. we lower them and we lower them and then they extend the axles out. So they have a really wide footprint and then that makes it a lot better. You still flip them, but you don't flip them. Not, easy. not as easy. I've rolled a lot of three wheels. <laughs> How fast do you go on those? Um, up, he, his can go upwards of high sixties, almost seventies. Mine was a little lower. Mine was probably high fifties into the sixties. So, and you're just on like a like a, a, a circular track. No, there's track. we do a TT, which is half the oval, and then it cuts into the middle, and then there's a few jumps, and then there's like some sharp turns, and then wow. there's some like small bends that you have to go through, and then you come back out onto the oval and pin it out onto the oval straight away. So, and you do a few laps of that. So, so it's not like you're going. 40 50 miles an hour all the time you're slowing you, you're hitting no, you, jumps. you slow through you go a little slower through those t um the tt track but when you hit that open straight away it's wide, wide open so and he, it's you're going pinning it as fast as you can so huh. and there's the 200 class and that's 200 cc's and last and then there's the open class which these guys are putting oh big yamaha triple motors in these <laughs> three wheelers that the motor is bigger than the trike itself and they're just <laughs> pinning it and it's those guys, they, they're moving 75 miles an hour, if not more. So, and they, it's a lot of power. So. Yeah. But so do you run the 200 or the open? I run the 200 class. Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't need that type of <laughs> firepower. Into yeah, your ass. I'm good. <laughs> I did it looking for an adrenaline rush because I just, I apparently I don't have enough of adrenaline rush, just farming and everything. So I did that. And if that doesn't give it to me this year, I'll probably try bull riding next year so bull riding really i'd like to try bull riding that if yeah if you aren't complete if if bull riding doesn't doesn't satisfy your adrenaline rush i don't know what else to tell you yeah it's worth a shot (laughs) where are you gonna do that at oh there's a there's a core there's a guy up um up in northern new york he's about an hour and a half away he's got a bull riding i guess it's a ranch whatever he calls it he raises he raises bull bucking bulls and I've talked to him a little bit, and he's really he's willing to have me come up and get on him whenever I want. So I might try that. But my boss is kind of doesn't want me to go do that because if I get hurt, then, uh, somebody's got to test my farms. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and he won't give me workers' comp apparently, even though it's a cow that hurts me. But <laughs> yeah, you could tell. Yeah, that doesn't count as being on the job and getting mm-hmm. hit by a cow. Anytime I get hurt at my farm, I sit there and think, oh, how can I? How can I take this to work with me? <laughs> get the system, yeah. Yeah, but I have yet to I have yet to get hurt enough that I can't go to work. Well, I hope that <clears> stays. Yeah. yeah. I hope you don't get hurt. So yeah. that'd be Which I, I was around that. I was around when I told you I crushed my hand, right? No. I slipped and fell into our uh, barn cleaner. Oh and I, while I was running. While I was running oh. and I landed on the sprocket and my sweatshirt got caught in the sprocket, so I held my hand up like this going all the way around. I was like, okay, I'll just let it be around, but I was worried about my fingers going in the sprocket. Didn't realize I got so close to the belt and it went all the way around the belt pulley that drives oh. a really fast one. So it popped all my knuckles open. That was about a month ago. Popped them all open and my whole hand was swollen, but I still tested. Still went to work. Jeez, no, you never mentioned that. Yeah, it was probably after I tested you. Yeah, you were just here within the last. You were just here a few weeks ago. 
like two yeah, weeks ago? Yeah, it was probably a little bit before that. Oh. It was yeah, yeah, it was a few weeks before that. So no one was in there to yell and say shut it down. Well, it happened so quickly. Like okay. I, I landed on sprocket and it was going all the way around. I was like, okay, this isn't that bad. But then it hit the pulley and that pulley spinning really oh, fast. Yeah. So it just went vroom all the way around really oh. fast. So I pulled my hand out and it was all busted open. So I shut the gutter cleaner off and I walked into the milk house and I was like, I'm going to go sit in my truck for a little bit and just kind of, you know, let this pain just start. So I had somebody else go spread manure and I sat there and let the pain start. Yeah. Cause it's completely numb. Yeah. But it's all the, ex- know it's the adrenaline's up and your body's kind of like, uh, but you haven't felt the pain yet. And then the next day I felt the pain. Yeah. So. It didn't break it. It just, Nope. It just cut. popped. It popped all my uh, fingers out of socket a little bit. So I had to kind of push them all back in to lock them back into place. <laughs> And then I had it wrapped very tight for a few days, so that helped. So well, at least you did it while it was still numb, so it probably yeah. didn't hurt as yeah. much as it was. All right. Yikes. Yeah. I'm glad you're all right. You didn't lose all your fingers. <laughs> That's what I was. I mean, if I would have fell into the sprocket, it would have just been a very slow popping oh. of every single finger off. Then I wouldn't have been able to test because I can't write with my left hand at all. <laughs> so. Oh, Oh man, yeah, testing with no fingers, a thumb. At least you a got your thumb. thumb. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- uh, I told my wife, I was like, I'll just strap the clipboard to this arm and I'll learn to write with this hand. It'll be fine. <laughs> but uh, she didn't like that idea. So <laughs> she's all right with you going and doing some uh, bull riding. Yeah, my father-in-law was like, "Well, we got bulls here. I mean, anytime you're ready, just we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll tie one up." And I I've had some cranky bulls at our farm that uh. I thought about it. I used to ride, we used to ride our dairy cows. We'd go out to the pastures to get them and we didn't want to walk all the way back. So we'd have a few older cows that we knew would let us jump on their backs and we'd ride them all the way back to the barn and they were fine with it. So we've done that. We've jumped on the bulls and they've ran us into concrete walls or whatever. And we've fallen <laughs> off and gotten hurt, but it was nothing like actually riding a bull. So I'm curious to see what that's like. Yeah, where this guy's just jumping up and down and kicking and yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll last very long, but I definitely will. I'll definitely try it at least once. So is this just kind of like a try it one time? Say I did it. That was awesome. We'll see. Or, we'll I see if it, I like we'll it enough. <laughs> We're gonna see you on the uh, what's the bull riding PBR. PBR. Oh yeah, yeah. You'll see me bull. there. Yeah. <laughs> There's Josh. <laughs> this is where he started. <laughs> Uh, I love how that's PBR. Professional like, bull riding. Yeah, but it's the same as like P- like beer, PBR. Oh, beer. Yes. I love how that's like you hear. Well, they probably sponsor it. I'm so. sure they are. That would make would. a lot of sense. Yep. But, oh. <laughs> but yeah, so that's basically my life and that's what I do. And I do, uh, I try to do my job. That's basically it. So it's like kind of what we all do, I guess. Yeah, you just get through life and mm-hmm. go day at a time. Yep. If you weren't doing this, if you didn't have agriculture or any of that, what would you do? Hmm. I've heard you ask this question. And I always was going to try to figure out what I uh, said I was going to do. Oh, probably some type of automotive, I guess. Mechanic type, type of work like that. Restoration, some type of work. So I got my old Ford pickup truck that I really like and planning on restoring that in the next year or two so i like that type of work and so like to tinker on i like equipment. to tinker and fix on stuff yep so just not the new stuff because you can't fix your i can't fix it. you can't fix i can't fix that i don't know why i can't fix that it's all a dumb computer and it's it. all well if it was just a gear system oh. transmission i would i would be more than happy to tear into it but being all like it's all solenoids and they drive out and then we went to the we went over to Empire Tractor to see if we could get a schematic to say okay it's this solenoid's making the reverse not work. Not even in the manual did they say this is what this solenoid does and this is what this one does. They just there's eight of them and nobody knows what they do. So <laughs> apparently nobody knows. So so you buy all eight and you see. <laughs> they basically told me that I could buy one really one brand new one and just start swapping it in and out of all eight of them and just see when it finally turns on oh. and then then I would know which one does what. I'm like, well, that seems like a very expensive way to do this, but I guess because there's two there's two parts to the solenoid. There's either the electrical part or the valve itself, and I think both parts together are like fourteen hundred dollars. So I don't really want to pay fourteen hundred dollars just to try to figure it out. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think once I start plugging it in and out, they'll return it. <laughs> <laughs> you'll have a you'll have a brand new one on the shelf when when you need it, right? Oh yeah. So. Uh. 
but yeah so well cool man yeah um yeah i guess thanks for stopping in oh yeah this is a lot of fun and oh yeah get the i've learned some new stuff about you and i did the whole i'll keep me in tune about the boar riding i want to see some videos i will if i ever get up there i was supposed to do it i was supposed to do it the year covid hit that spring and then they canceled it because of covid yeah so i kind of was like i'll put it on the back burner and maybe it'll come up again so i'm gonna try it hopefully sooner than later and wear a thick helmet (laughs) and some body armor a cup <laughs> yeah, probably. Don't wanna. I I have kids. I don't. I think I want a few more. I was gonna say maybe you don't want kids. And okay, cool. But yeah, yeah. If, if you're planning on expanding your family, you might wanna. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, but anyway, well, it was, thanks for stopping in, Josh. Yeah, thank you for having me. me. That anytime, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>